You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it is raining. It seems to be what has happened a lot. So uh, drive carefully out there, folks. A lot of standing water in places, some of the usual spots that are flooding flood, and, uh, you know, Watch the tide tables if you're driving through Cushman there on Highway 126, uh, and uh, just be careful out there. Hey, it could be worse. We could be in Northern Virginia stuck on I-95. Ah, um, uh, yeah, but you know we have <clears throat> we don't make the national news so much, but I think that sort of happened up on I-84 to a few people, and I know some people that got turned around on Santa Ann Pass um, in the last day or so. So. You know, we're not immune from that sort of stuff, but the I-95 stuff is pretty unusual because, yeah, I grew up in that part of the world and, and, and enough snow to, to shut down the super highways around D.C. is pretty impressive amount of snow um, pretty quickly. But, of course, people are pretty stupid sometimes, and that's say, a few accidents, and then the clouds can't get through, and the next thing you know, you've got that I-95 in Virginia situation. I just kind of wonder what happened to the people that got stuck in that for 24 hours that were driving Teslas? Ponder that one for a few moments. And then ask yourself why it took so long for them to clear the highway. I did see a really great post on Facebook about it, though. Uh, a local uh, bakery company had a truck stuck in the traffic uh, a family that was had, hadn't eaten in almost 24 hours, uh, stuck in their car, um, call, you know, was, had enough power on their cell phone to Google the, the bakery and called the bakery and asked if if they could get somebody to open up the back of the truck and maybe let people have some 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 bakery goods. And next thing you know, they got a call back from the CEO of the company saying that they were going to open up the truck. And, and sure enough, the truck driver opened the back of the truck and, uh, you know, bread and hot dog buns, et cetera, were distributed to everybody within walking distance, basically, of that truck. Um, you know, what a great story, you know, and what, a, what a good thing that bakery did. Sometimes people can make you happy. Sometimes not, but you know it, it's fascinating. Sometimes it takes something like that to to see the best in people. You know, in the middle of a crisis like that, sometimes crisis shows the worst in people. Brings me back to my year in review. Because <laughs> as I, I as I go through my year in review, you know, and I got through about August, uh, right before the new year there on my show, and I'm. I picked it back up and started, you know, taking my notes for the show and trying to finish up the year. And knowing the previous, you know, seven months or so I covered, uh, you know, dominated by COVID stuff and emergencies and everything and how people react to that. Um, yeah, sometimes emergencies don't bring out the best in us. Um, and I was reminded of the fact, you know, as I was going through December that, you know, in December, our board actually voted to extend our COVID emergency another three months. I was the only board member that voted against that because I didn't think it was really necessary. Because the whole, the only real reason we had done, had the emergency in place was to take advantage of being able to react quick, quickly to a lot of situations and give the um, county administrator authority to you know, take actions in between board meetings where he had to do something that exceeded his authority. 
without having the board say, yeah, that's okay. Um, we're beyond that. There's no big, you know, swings in and having to spend money and everything else. Yeah, so there's no real reason to keep the emergency in place. But um, what was fascinating was Joe Bernie's, um, you know, reaction to it was there's no downside into keeping the emergency in place just in case we might need, you know, need action or something like that. It's like no downside to uh, sitting in a constant state of emergency. You know, I, I, I can't quite fathom that in some ways. And Omicron, you know, like I, I, in my promo, it's like, oh my gosh, Omicron, you know, people are just going, you know, at least certain people in the media are trying to feed this, that it's this, you know, the end, you know, another end of the world as we know it, you know, every, every new um, variant that starts coming out, you know, everybody's, oh my God, it's much more, you know, virulent and contagious than the last one or whatever. This one we know is much more contagious than the last one, but it's much less severe. So we're going to see a lot more people get COVID but we're probably not going to see near the hospitalization stuff. And speaking of that, you know, this is kind of where you get to this, how people react in emergencies. Dr. Fauci and our OHA director, Patrick Allen, basically admitted that the data for COVID hospitalizations is skewed and it's being overreported. They both admitted that if you go into a hospital for some other reason, you're in a car wreck, you end up in traction in the hospital, and while you're there, they take a COVID test for you. Not, mind you, you weren't having any symptoms, and it comes back positive. You are now a COVID patient data, data point. So with a very contagious yet less severe Omicron, there's going to be a lot more hospital patients that were not there for COVID that will, you know, every, just about everyone that goes into hospitals automatically tested for COVID that will show up as a COVID patient data later. So as you see these, these, all these numbers climbing of COVID patients, just remember, is it total hospital patients that are climbing? Or is it just hospital patients that turned out to have COVID? or got COVID while they're at the hospital. Because it sounds like this Omicron variant is extremely contagious. People are getting it despite wearing masks, despite being vaccinated. They're getting it from distances greater than six feet. You know, it's, you know, it's that contagious, which is a little bit of a scary thing. You don't like any disease that, you know, uh, you know there's certain d- diseases that are highly, highly contagious that we, we all worry about in the uh, public health world, like uh, measles and a few others that have really high, you know, I've, I've talked about the whole, um, what they call R, R sub O, um, which is a, a factor they give certain diseases on how contagious it is, which basically is, you know, an RO of one means that if you have one person with disease, they only give it to one other person. And anything less than one means the disease burns out quickly, and anything more than one means the amount of people having it will grow. And there, you know, certain, you know, COVID's basically been running around a two to a four, depending on the variant. Um, and where measles can run up to sixteen on that scale. So you can imagine something that where one person gives it to 16 and those 16 give it to 16, how fast that can get out of control and why that gives our public health people a whole lot more, you know, anxiety and acid reflux than some other diseases do. Uh, it looks like Omicron probably has a really high transmission transmissivity, which is basically what that RO stands for. And, uh, but it's got a lower severity. We're not seeing the near amount of hospitalizations and deaths from it. Um, of course, you know, I, I want to make sure people understand COVID is still a dangerous disease. You don't want anyone that's old or has comorbidities 
like heart disease, diabetes, or extreme obesity getting COVID because it can, you know, it, I don't care how mild of a strain of COVID it is, there's still a chance that person will die or need hospitalization. So we still have to be careful and all that, but it's just uh, the hair on fire thing just amazes me. And, it, and it'll be interesting to watch how the hospitalization statistics get reported now that we realize they have been counting a, you know, the kid that falls out of his tree fort and breaks his arm and ends up in the hospital that then tests positive asymptomatically for COVID is counted as an, a, as a juvenile hospitalization for COVID and justifying some of the, you know, oh, the increasing cases for, you know, <laughs> and hospitalizations of kids. It's like when you talk about people who were truly hospitalized for COVID for juveniles and kids like that, it generally is a kid that is extremely obese, you know, and that comorbidity issue. Rarely is it a healthy kid. Healthy kids fly through COVID for the most part, mostly asymptomatic cases, even if it wasn't the Omicron variant, even the Delta variant. But why digress? Maybe we should get back to our year in review. But I will remind people before I get back to that, that we are a call-in show. And, you know, 646-721-9887 is how you get into the show. Don't forget to press 1 so we know you want to talk on the show versus just calling in to listen because we do have people that do that. And, uh, you know, we can... Talk about whatever you want to talk about. You know, if you want to talk about my T-shirt, you know, whether it's the Game of Thrones side of things or single malt scotches, uh, we can do that. If you want to talk about, you know, COVID or anything there, we can talk about that. Or we can talk about, you know, redistricting and some issues there, which kind of came up at our board meeting yesterday uh, a little bit. Seems that. Um, we got a letter from four members of the independent redistricting committee upset that the deadline to have the, their new uh, map, uh, gerrymandered map, apply was missed for this next year's elections. Um, and they're trying to blame our Lane County Council, Steve Dingle, for that missing of the deadline. And he's he's not to blame for that. You know, he the board received, you know, we started this work back in 2019, the original conversations around redistricting committees and doing it differently. And you know, I was pushing for a charter amendment versus what the board did as an ordinance. I was also pushing for a different way of selecting the committee than what the board came up with. Um, because I think that the way the committee was selected basically meant it was going to be, you might as well just have the board do it because it was going to be there, there, the board majorities magnified in, in the selection process. Neither here nor there, memos from staff and county council going all the way back to 2019 mentioned the six-month deadline. And in fact, even in this year, on January 27th, the board had a work session about it and the board memo that we received almost a week ahead of time and is also available to the public, which was only seven pages long and barely seven pages. And a lot of that's white space. If you ever look at a board memo, there's, there's, you know, breaks between the various sections of the memo and et cetera. And, and uh, so it's not a lot of words there, but almost an entire page starting on, on page five and continuing on, page six was about the deadlines contained in the Lane County Home Rule Charter relative to redistricting, including a note about the six month prior to the election application, you know, having to have it complete. And in that memo stating exactly the last day we could have the first reading and the last day we could adopt the ordinance to make them applicable. 
the board had that in their possession last January. You know, fast forward through the year and all that stuff, and our our board leadership and our count, you know, our calendar agenda. I I don't control that at all. You know, if I I I can't say you know we need to have this item come up at certain this time, or I want this item on the agenda, unless I get two other board members to agree to it, it doesn't even get on the agenda. And then when it actually gets scheduled, happens by the the board chair, basically, makes makes that determination. Um, so the board chair and whichever group can put together three votes consistently, which is the progressives on our board right now, basically control the calendar and the agenda. Now, they've had that knowledge about this six-month deadline multiple times over the last several years. It's been in board, you know, written packets. It's been actually mentioned, you know, in a meeting a few times, yet we missed that deadline. So, lo and behold, we get this letter from, you know, four members of the IRC, including the paid political consultant from the Heather Buck and Joe Bernie campaigns, you know. That's why I always say independent in, in quotes, uh, air quotes sometimes. Uh, it was one of the people that signed this, trying to blame our county council, who in a written memo told the board what the deadlines were and when they should take action by. But somehow or another, it's his fault that our progressive majority failed to schedule action on the districts in time to meet those deadlines. And they didn't miss it by a little bit, not a few days. They missed it by a month and a half. So, I, you know, just just want to say that you know that that's really what it comes down to is you know a complete failure by them, not our county council. Um, and so it's it's. It's kind of funny, but it seems to be a continuance of a, a certain commissioner's vendetta against our county council. Which commissioner was it that tried to have him terminated and cost us over $200,000 in additional compensation over the next year? Oh, yeah, that was Commissioner Heather Buck, whose paid political consultant made a complaint against Mr. Dingle that was used to justify her request to to end his contract, which led to that extra 200,000 compensation, and also was a signator to this letter complaining about county council and blaming him for missing this deadline that he notified the board of in writing. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Now, mind you, there's a certain special interest group in the background that would like to see Mr. Dingle terminated that also was a was the largest contributor to Heather Buck's campaign. <laughs> so that might be what some of what's driving that. Uh finally trying to, to make good on, on some campaign promises that were, you know, done in, in back rooms or something. But we'll see. So getting back to our year in review. <laughs> As I digress, I keep digressing. Sorry about that. I apologize. It's the way my mind works. Or maybe it's just old age or something like that. It's kind of like walking through the doorway and you forget why you walked into the room. And while you're in there and you've forgotten what you walked in there for, you see something that you, you need to take care of. You start taking care of that and realize you don't have a pencil. So you go to look for the pencil, forget why you were in that, that room. And then you realize you need to pee. Um, <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm not getting old. Uh, sorry, I digress again. So we will get started on our year review again. I left off kind of, you know, quickly ran through June, July at the end of the meet, of last uh, broadcast, and I'll start up in August then. And you know, in August, lots of things were going on. That was the the renewal of COVID and the end of our brief respite with freedom here in Oregon as Delta came back. 
And uh, while that was going on, our um, board passed a $15 an hour minimum wage for county employees that are being paid by the taxes that come from citizens like that are on fixed incomes or might be working for minimum wage that's not $15 an hour. So just, you know, but it was important for them to virtue signal because there was only like 10 employees that don't make $15 an hour at the county. And if you count benefits, they made more than $15 an hour. But we had to virtue signal and show that we're, you know, we're going to have a $15 an hour minimum wage, and that that board passed that. Um, and at the same time, our progressives killed a job-creating quarry proposal out in Oak Ridge that would also have prevented many truck trips on Highway 58 into the Oak Ridge area to bring gravel there. Um, you know, it's just it's damn damn the the, the logic or the good reasons or anything else. Um, they look for an excuse to kill it because they're environmental backers and anti-growth folks. We're telling them that they wanted it killed. And and, and speaking of of you know the folks that are into, you know, being all climate friendly and stuff like that, you know, South Eugene at that same time, the neighbors around an eWeb reservoir project got a stay and stopped the project for a while because, you know, they didn't want that construction on a piece of property that eWeb bought, you know, almost 40 years ago, specifically for Actually, it was almost 60 years ago, specifically for building a reservoir, and had posted signs around that at various times saying "future site of Eweb Reservoir." It wasn't ever supposed to be a park for the, na- the neighbors that lived around it. But Lord, when you finally start breaking ground, people are like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't realize they were actually going to cut down some trees for this mm-hmm. project. We need a stay," and they actually got it for a short while. Those, you know, NIMBY neighbors were holding up a project that was going to provide safe drinking water and, and resilience in in an emergency for all the citizens of Eugene, because that's a base level reservoir that's needed to replace the aging reservoir on College Hill um, and is a really important piece of EWEB's infrastructure. But, you know. Don't cut a tree down, um, and, and especially not in my backyard, especially if you're in South Eugene, because, you know, we can't even have homeless camps in South Eugene. You know, that that was in an earlier month in the year where the, the safe sleep sites that were proposed were all outside and north of West 11th Avenue, because Lord forbid you put a homeless camp in South Eugene somewhere. You can't even build a reservoir in South Eugene. August brought about the reinstatement of mask mandates by the governor. Um, you know, we saw the Middle Fork complex grow. We saw some smoke and all here in, in Eugene. Um, and at the same time, you know, our board kept moving forward with a fireworks ban, which I was okay with the way it was proposed that, you know, if there was a um, – certain level of fire danger declared that there's a ban on use of fireworks. I was okay with that because almost all of Lane County is covered by that sort of a ban anyway, because anything that's under Oregon Department of Forestry protection, which is most of Lane County or U.S. Forest Service protection, once you reach a certain you know fire season declared, you can't use fireworks in those areas anymore. It was only a small piece of Lane County that wasn't covered by those particular um, areas, and uh, this would just make it consistent for the entire county. But they went beyond that and decided that they weren't just going to ban um, the the use of fireworks during fire, uh, fire season. They wanted a ban on sales and manufacture. So... You know, they just had to go beyond. I'm not sure how they're going to enforce it. I'm not sure if we're going to end up getting sued eventually by somebody that sells 
fireworks or maybe by somebody that manufactures them, you know, because Tannerite also, you know, besides the, the targets, they also make fireworks. <laughs> so it'd be interesting to see how that works out uh, in the future. Um, and, you know, throughout all this, um, they, in August, the governor announced that she was going to have an employment vaccine mandate uh, for state and healthcare workers um, that was going to, you know, be implemented um, by October 18th was the deadline for everyone to get fully vaccinated. Um, and uh, there were a lot of parents attending school board meetings about that time, kind of upset about mask mandates, you know, when it really wasn't the school board's fault, it was the state's fault that was threatening school boards with yanking their funding and, and pulling teachers licenses if they didn't mandate masking of children. Um, so during all this, our board decided that they were going to send a letter to the governor um, thanking for ha how well she handled the COVID crisis. I voted against it because <laughs> I, you know, I have to believe that a lot of the way she handled it was not legal and extra constitutional. Um, went beyond her powers at, you know, at times, if you listen to the last show, I talked about how she was using the wrong metrics in establishing risk levels for counties, how she was letting the little area of the U of O drive Lane County into extreme risk. Um, it, it was, and, and closing down the wrong businesses, um, the arbitrariness of some of her decisions uh, where, you know, it was, <clears throat> okay to have a hundred people in a church, but you couldn't have, you know, 50 people in a theater that used to be a church. <laughs> you know, it was just stupid rules um, that didn't make sense, didn't follow any science, weren't based on data of transmissions or anything like that, shutting down of gyms, you know, and here we're writing the governor a attaboy letter from Lane County, so I'm glad it was not a unanimous attaboy letter. Um, so while we're, um, you know, towards the end of August there, there was a little story that came out about when you should not look at your watch. Getting a little bit away from the local and state and turning to national, international, Remember this whole thing about withdrawing from Afghanistan? Well, our president, you know, when some uh, of the servicemen that gave the paid the ultimate price were being brought back to the country and taken off the plane, you know, at, at one of the Air Force bases there, um, you know, not a very long um, ceremony and process. Um, while the, the caskets are being taken down the ramp and into waiting hearses, um, are you know you, usually a president stands there and salutes. Uh, yeah, our current president decides to look at his watch, not just once. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I, I know Robin's dying to play one of her Joe Biden sound bites, probably. <laughs> But I didn't prep her a Q1. <laughs> what was that? Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, Come on, man. Get yeah. a life. Yeah, yeah. when not to look at your watch? Yeah, there's certain times you just don't do it, like your wedding ceremony, you know? You don't look at your watch in the middle of your wedding ceremony. <laughs> Not if you want to stay married. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that kind of wrapped up August, that little incident at the airport. And we move into September. So you just want to make sure I covered everything. So I was skipping around a bit. And by the way, you know, I got a lot of, I got hairy legs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you do. 
Okay. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's speaking of the federal government, the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, not the, not the, uh, the, not the Marxist movement that collected money and, and never gave it to the people they promised they were, um, but, and was buying, you know, luxury houses for their executive director, the federal agency that manages a lot of the property in the Western United States that it shouldn't be managing because it should have gone back to the counties and states that it was in, and they should have been able to turn it back into private ownership. But I digress again. But Bureau of Land Management came out after originally saying they were going to look at multiple alternatives with the Holt Pond um, that sits up north of Horton there in the Blatchley Triangle Lake area of, of the county. Um, that Holt Pond has been there, you know, it was originally there for the Holt Sawmill that uh, eventually shut down and was abandoned. And the land was turned back over to the federal government. That's how BLM and ended up with it. But they were looking at multiple, you know, before before pre-COVID, they were looking at multiple options to what to do with that, which included keeping it and all that. Well, they restarted the process for their their um, NEPA, you know, their, their National Environmental Protection Act, um, EIS, Environmental Impacts Study that they have to do for the federal government. But they restarted it with the only option was removing the dam, and it's just the only things that they were studying, the differences between in the study was what to do after the dam was removed. So they went from, you know, keeping the dam, adding a fish ladder to it, doing this, doing that, and, and with removal of the dam being one of multiple options about, you know, that besides all the options for keeping the dam to we're removing the dam, and then what do you want to do with it after we remove the dam? We're, we're offering you options there. Needless to say, the folks that have been going there for years, taught their kids to swim and fish there and everything else, the area, you know, there's a little store up in Horton. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, people from Junction City and down here in the Veneta area that have grown up going there were a little bit upset at them for making that change. And, but today's date, they're still moving ahead. They, you know, publicly dammed. They got a huge backlash for going, you know, coming back out without any options to keep the dam, and they're moving on ahead with their environmental study. So that's your government listening to the people. <laughs> and of course, you know, September we had a couple um, anniversaries that came up there. That you know, of course, the one year since the. Uh, East wind event that caused the holiday farm fire and multiple others here in Oregon that were just horrible. You know, loss of multiple homes. You know, only one person died in Lane County, which is just amazing and a testament to our emergency management staff and our sheriff's office and our first responders in the volunteer fire departments upriver. Um, did an amazing job evacuating people, moving people out of harm's way. Neighbors helping neighbors, too. It wasn't just first responders. I mean, neighbors turned themselves into first responders. Um, but, you know, that was a, you know, it's sad to commemorate that anniversary. And a couple of days later, we had the 20th anniversary, 11 attacks on America, um, which is was kind of surreal to me because, you know, everybody remembers that day that was that lived through that day, more or less and can tell you where they were when they first heard about the planes hitting the towers, watching it on TV and everything else that happened afterwards. Um, so, you know, kind of, an, you know, the first week was kind of a sort of a sad and bitter week in some ways. Um, but, you know, while all that's going on, our board of commissioners held two executive sessions in, in early September where we basically reviewed options for, you know, whether or not, you know, we were going to have a vaccine mandate. And if we did, how, how restrictive of a mandate would be. And our board basically 
on you know four to one with me being the one that didn't that wanted to take no action um came to a, a recommend you know supported the county administrator in moving ahead with the most restrictive of mandates for county employees that basically said you will be vaccinated or you will lose unless you have an approved exemption you will be terminated on november 30th of course once the unions got wind of that they wanted to negotiate they demanded to bargain that which was one of the reasons why i said no action because that's going to cost us money unnecessarily but that you know get into that but those executive sessions are closed door, not open to the public. And we came to a decision. Although, you know, some people might disagree with that. I can't see how we can go in there. And the first thing we were presented was five options from do nothing to the most restrictive mandate and some other options in between, like, you know, testing, you know, bi-weekly testing if you didn't want to get vaccinated to various you know stages in between and they chose the one that was basically get the vaccine or or you're going to be terminated um so to me that's a decision and in fact they even approved they basically reviewed policy in the second executive session to implement the option of choice from the first session and uh at the end of the month, I've got the board to agree to release the tapes of those meetings because I felt we had violated public meetings law. And the board did vote three to two to release that. But I want folks to remember, Commissioner Buck and Commissioner Trigger voted against letting those tapes be made public. They wanted the whole process to be kept secret and out of public view. You know, creating a vaccine mandate. Couldn't let the public know about that. So, you know, that that was going on at the same time, you know, as we're thinking about implementing a vaccine mandate for employees, multiple governments in rural Oregon and other areas were declaring local emergencies because they were concerned they were going to have a shortage of employees due to the governor's vaccine mandate that covered healthcare workers and some first responders that supply some version of healthcare. Um, and there was a real concern about, you know, what's gonna happen when these mandates get implemented. But, you know, it wasn't just so bad that the governor decided to implement this vaccine mandate. At the same time, her executive branch made the announcement that if you did lose your job because you did not want to get get vaccinated, they were not going to pay you unemployment insurance. Now, mind you, that mandate was a change in employment conditions because obviously our, our, our unions could bargain it and it was not what you agreed to when you took the job. So you can't really be violating company policy and, and ineligible for unemployment. And all your previous employment, you and your employer have been contributing to the unemployment insurance funds. She declared, you know, preemptively that if you didn't agree to the vaccines, they weren't going to pay you unemployment. Can you say coercion? So, you know, in September, we also got our first look as, at our floodplain ordinance coming back to us to fix. Now, I, I I didn't predict that maybe when we passed it the year before. You know, we probably covered that in the last, the year, last year's year in review. But, you know, when we passed that floodplain ordinance, I stated one of the reasons I was voting against it. It was flawed. It had some real problems. And one of the really problematic portions of it, I said right then, was this, this idea compensatory storage and having to compensate if you filled the floodplain with some kind of excavation to provide the storage and how difficult it was to manage that kind of program and how hard it was going to be for folks to comply with it and that 
the exemptions that that Heather Buck claimed applied to fire victims didn't cover the compensatory storage part. Fortunately, there was a bill, you know, that I talked about last time that House Bill 2289 exempted fire victims from our floodplain ordinance. But that was part of what was causing them so much problems up to that point was that whole idea of compensatory storage. So the, the new revised version of the floodplain ordinance tossed that entire section out. So can I say I told you so? Yes, I told you so. <laughs> and, and at the same time in September, you know, while we're holding secret meetings to do vaccine mandates, um, Homes for Good, which is our HUD housing authority, which is an agency required by the federal government to receive the, the uh, low-income housing funds from the Housing and Urban Development um, Department of the federal government. Uh, you have, that local board has to be under the control of an elected body. And in Lane County, that elected body is the Board of Commissioners. We're in charge of appointing the members of that board. And as it currently exists, it's the five commissioners plus two people that are residents of the housing. Um, so we have what we call resident commissioners. Uh, and it's, it's good because that agency deals with millions of dollars in taxpayer money. And we are elected and responsible to the taxpayers and, over, and providing the oversight of that agency. And we don't run it day to day. We hire the executive director, just like our county, county administrator that reports to that board and runs the agency. Our board progressives supported a change in the bylaws for that that minimizes the board's participation down to just two members on that board and adds in a bunch of appointed board members that aren't directly connected to the taxpayer. Of course, the, you know, the Board of Commissioners will have to approve those appointments, but that's, you know, that's putting an arm's distance on an agency that spends millions of taxpayer funds. So we get, you know, closed door meetings on vaccine mandates and we're decreasing the elected official oversight of an agency that spends millions of taxpayer money. And, you know, the state during the month of September finished their gerrymandering uh, redistricting. Um, and our board voted to usurp uh, the Columbus Day holiday with Indigenous Peoples Day, um, which I voted against. Um, I would have supported declaring an Indigenous Peoples Day any day, any other day or on top of Columbus Day. But the way the, the, the declaration was written was they were basically erasing Columbus Day and making that Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, you can't erase history, and there are good reasons to celebrate Christopher Columbus. And um, rewriting history um, it, 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 and demonizing him the way certain progressives ha have is, is just not called for. But, you know, to kind of finish out the month, Commissioner Buck started that process of trying to, to terminate our county council, Steve Dingle. And we'll talk about more about that in November here as we flip the page into, in, into October. Because November, that kind of gets finalized or the end of October. So we'll talk more about Mr. Dingle in a minute. But when we flip over to October, beginning of October, we got a report from the state where they released vaccination data by demographic group. And it turns out that white people were 20 points basically ahead of most minority demographic groups, with the exception being um, Asians and Pacific Islanders, I believe, were ahead of the whites. The rest of them were about 20 points behind, which kind of led me to ask the question, is our Lane County 
uh, vaccine mandate for our employees going to have disproportionate impact on minorities that work for Lane County? Because if they reflect the general population, have a lower vaccination rate, they could be terminated at a higher rate than our white employees. Well, that kind of got met with um, resounding silence in some ways. And, um, you know, I asked at that time, could I get some data on our employees as far as vaccination rate by those same demographic breakdowns? So we'll talk about that a little later because later on that data wasn't very forthcoming. Um, so also in October, um, our U.S. Senate confirmed a former ECHO terrorist as the head of our Bureau of Land Management, that same Bureau of Land Management that's going to remove Holt Pond, while at the same time, our U.S. Attorney General was threatening to label parents that were going to school board meetings and objecting to mask mandates or the use of critical race theory in curriculum as terrorists. So on one hand, we're confirming a a known terrorist that participated in spiking trees, which couldn't kill somebody in a sawmill when that mill saw hits a tree spike and explodes. Um, That person was appointed head, head of the BLM or confirmed that while our AG is trying to say parents that are concerned about their kids' education and are showing up at school board meetings are terrorists. Kind of keep waiting for Rod Serling to walk out and, you know, start talking in his, his voice. Picture this. A society where terrorists are in charge, parents are being called terrorists. Ah, yes. So, you know, October 18th came, uh, which was Mandate Monday. And, uh, of course, a lot of the, you know, unions had gotten, you know, to the governor and their deadlines were pushed back. So it wasn't really the big day that everybody thought it was going to be. Um, And but the press was asking for data on how many um, of the state workers that were the mandate applied to were were compliant and non-compliant. Well, the state in trying to provide that information leaked the personal information of almost every state worker and their vaccine status to the press, you know, with, with clear identifying information like names, addresses, et cetera. So once again, our state can't handle IT. And so late in the month, you know, I at I you know come back after my early in the month request for data, and I basically was told, well, we can't give you that data because it's too sensitive. The the, the groups aren't large enough. We were worried it might identify or or you know cause problems. You know, we're just not going to give you that data. Really? Yeah. I I didn't ask for anybody's names. I asked for you. Know, aggregated data on on this and I couldn't get it from them. So eventually I had to make a public records request for it. Eventually I got the data a couple months later and it actually showed there wasn't a very large disparity and it wasn't statistically big enough variance to to say that that we had let more minority employees uh, go uh, than we had uh, white employees, which was a good thing. But just the fact that I had to make a public request records request of my own county as a commissioner to get data that wasn't going and it never identified anybody, didn't cause any problems. But the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, we can't give you that data. It might cause problems. Also in the month of October, saw a parks funding presentation, which was following up on an earlier stormwater fee uh, proposal. So it was one of those, guess what? They're going to come after you for more money months. 
So be prepared, folks. You're going to probably see some kind of bond initiative for parks come out in the future, and you're probably going to see some kind of proposal to form a stormwater utility in Lane County to try and collect fees, monthly fees or something for. Um, keep an eye out. And uh, it was in the, the month of uh, October, as our independent redistricting committee was hard at work, that a complaint came about from a committee member that realized, hey, this I know this guy on the committee. He worked for Heather Buck and Joe Bernie's campaigns. And in fact, after a little research that was done, she realized he had been paid over $100,000 from Heather Buck and Joe Bernie to get them elected. And he was on the committee working on and presenting, in fact, doing most of the work for the progressive committee members in developing maps that they were reviewing. So she kind of made a little bit of a ruckus about, is that violate you know, state ethics law or, you know, what, what's the story about this? So it made the news a little bit. You know, so that's how that story got out. Some people try and blame me for it. No, I, I had nothing to do with it. It was a member of the committee who also happens to be a woman of color, <laughs> but is, you know, plugged in enough to, to recognize that committee member was a political consultant and generally a political consultant for progressives. So, you know, that started some of the issues around the, you know, how independent was the independent redistricting committee? Well, at the same time, we had Bymart announcing they were closing their pharmacies in Oregon, or, you know, they, they're only in Oregon, but they're closing their pharmacies. And they cited a couple reasons about you know, rising cost of, of the drugs, the, the cap on reimbursement insurance providers are putting on them, the low margin, and then the, the corporate activities tax was one of the big reasons because that low margin in, but high volume of a pharmacy, when you put a gross receipts tax on it, suddenly it's not earning money anymore. So now suddenly you know, Biomark closes up their pharmacies and you're standing in line trying, just trying to get your stuff transferred to other pharmacies. Ask the folks in Florence, ask the folks here in Veneta and out in Junction City, how easy how long, how many times did you have to try and call your doctor's office or the, or the pharmacies to get that worked out? Thank you, corporate activities tax, which the voters said no to, and then the legislature passed anyway. At the same time, a survey came out. The um, I think it's the Oregon Business and Industries, or I'm not sure what the name of the organization is that, that did the survey, but it was a survey of accountants across the state. And what was reported was 85% of those accountants have individual clients that are considering or have plans to leave the state because of the tax burden. And 80% of those accountants have business clients that are planning on moving their businesses out of state because of the tax burden. Not a good sign for Oregon's future. And towards the end of the month, I, caused a little bit of a stir because I, I we had a contract coming back to us for approval on our board agenda and you know it has to be on our regular it's a contract that probably should have been on consent calendar but for the exception that um, Terry McDonald that's the executive director of St. Vincent de Paul is Commissioner Heather Buck's father so we have to put him on the regular board uh, anything to do with St. Vincent de Paul regular board agenda so that Commissioner Buck has the opportunity to recuse herself uh, from any actions concerning St. Vincent de Paul because of that relationship of her father being the executive director. Of course, she never says her father. She always says, I'm related to. Yeah, a little bit. 
strongly related, Heather. Um, but that contract, you know, was on our agenda, and I, I noticed it was a an amendment to an existing contract. And I'd seen, you know, in prior months, multiple amendments to existing contracts with St. Vincent de Paul and other nonprofits that just, you know, we seem to keep amending contracts to add money to them instead of rebidding them. And I was a little concerned, so I did a little research and looked back over the last two calendar years, contract or amendment the board has approved for St. Vincent de Paul. Well, it turns out it was about $41 million worth of contracts, of which only $4 million was new request for proposal contracts. The remainder was amendments, sole source, or single bid. And I kind of brought that up, and it kind of caused a little bit of a stir for, for a little while. But it was my point is good public contracting. And we have a lot of public contracting law in Oregon because it's meant to keep things honest and in the taxpayer's interest. It says you don't continue to amend a contract, if you, especially when it starts exceeding the original amount of the contract. I mean, everybody expects sometimes contracts run over or you need to add extra services. So you amend a contract that was maybe a million to make it a million two. But a $1 million contract becomes a $10 million contract is not normal. And that's what we were doing over and over again with nonprofits. Needs to be looked at. We need to be a little bit more careful. And most of those contract amendments are dealing with services to the homeless. Spending millions of dollars on homeless services without really strong oversight as far as public contracting goes. Let alone, you know, my concerns that I've expressed over and over again about what are the outcomes we're asking for, how are we measuring the effectiveness of the service we're paying for, is it just enabling people to stay homeless, or is it actually helping them get out of that situation and re-enabling them to be, you know, as productive as they can be given whatever their capacity is in society and, and you know, helping people reach their potential. So, um that was kind of how October ended was that, with that little issue around St. Vincent de Paul's contracting. So that brings us into November where redistricting moved to the board. Um, the redistricting committee finally finished up their work and provided a recommendation of three maps to the commissioners, two of which are favorite paid political consultant that received over $100,000 from Heather Buck and Joe Burney was involved in helping draft. Um, so, you know, that comes to the board. In December, we'll talk about the final decisions and all that because the actual final decision wasn't made till December 1st. But that process starts in November and we start getting some public comment on it, which by the way, was 80 to 90% for a map the board did not adopt. During the month of November, the federal government and our president announced that they were going to have a vaccine mandate on private employers that employed over 100 people. Despite projections that were coming out from various um, you know, people that study uh, communicable disease, in fact, here in Oregon, it was OHSU's projections that said by December we were going to reach, quote, herd immunity. In their, in their words. So on our way to herd immunity, but the federal government's gonna mandate something for private employers. Uh, during November, Mapleton suffered another uh, water crisis like they've suffered a couple of times before. Um, and eventually that was resolved, but you know, not without you know, having school canceled for several days and folks out of water, uh, boiling water, get, having to deliver bottled water from the county out there, um, which led me to talking about infrastructure and how we're so behind in maintaining our infrastructure in this country and how the 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill 
was lacking in actually addressing real infrastructure problems. That the actual amount of the dollars that they were putting towards that were a minuscule portion of what they considered the deferred maintenance on water infrastructure, what was actually identified to go for water infrastructure projects. So, you know, everybody might think that $1.2 billion bill was going to do a lot for our infrastructure. Well, so much of it was set aside for things like subsidizing electric car purchases or subsidizing electric charging stations for electric cars. But uh, never mind the fact that, you know, your, you, your water system is going to fail, your electric grid's teetering on the brink of, of failure, and your sewer system might back up into your house. We're going to subsidize all that stuff and spend a major portion of the bill on that. Um, yeah, it, that infrastructure bill wasn't what it was billed as. <laughs> in the meantime, back here locally, $1,000 plus in bicycles stolen from a local bike shop. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, where do they find several of the bikes? And they're the Washington Jefferson Bridge in that big homeless camp that's been there for months and months, and, and everyone's been complaining to the city about and the crime that's associated with it. And of course, while they're serving warrants, and you know, because they got to serve a warrant to to search a tent on public property, yes, that is truth. While they're serving warrants, looking for the bikes, they arrest multiple people on on past warrants <laughs> and and you know confiscate a bunch of heroin and arrest a few people for you know drug crimes and everything it, it's like get a clue um you know I, I my comment at the time was i hope that was the first place they started looking uh, but you know it kind of showed you know, in a microcosm something that came out uh, a report from the portland Travel Bureau, or whatever they call themselves up there, that's the equivalent of our um, Travel Lane County down here, to the city council on how badly they're doing as far as tourism and convention business in in Portland because people don't want to go there anymore. And they 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 researched into why people were choosing other cities and towns to hold their conventions or to vacation in, and it's because no one feels safe in Portland anymore because of civil unrest and from the protests and, you know, crime from the lack of policing, you know, the, the orange barrels aren't cutting it, and, you know, a few other things like that, and, and you know, the, the pictures of homeless camping all over the place. People just don't feel safe and comfortable in Portland. And I have a feeling we're going to have trouble selling Eugene <laughs> in a while if we keep this up. In the meantime, you know, speaking of infrastructure, the federal government gave Eugene a $19 million grant to rebuild Franklin Boulevard in the uh, image of the, what, you know, Europe that, that a lot of the progressives think is you know, the best thing, and they're going to put in another bunch of roundabouts. So besides the crazy eights down there in Glenwood, now we're going to have a whole bunch more down there by Mac Court and, you know, heading, you know, all the way across there. So have fun traveling through that area in the future. And and, and I I just hope, you know, and of course, that you know, this probably won't happen because gas prices are going to go up so much that kids won't cruise ever again. But, you know, Back in the day, there was the gut, and it, you know, on Willamette Street, the kids would cruise. Well, what a great cruising thing if you had roundabouts on each end rather than, you know, having to figure out how to go around the block or something to get turned around on your cruising, where you could just cruise Franklin Boulevard down to, you know, practically going over the bridge, go around the roundabout and cruise back, come into Eugene somewhere and go around that roundabout and cruise back. It's just like, hey, great times. So I am being sent signal that it's after five o'clock. And guess what? I didn't make it into December. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth. So 
I'll try and finish up this year in review very quickly just by saying the board ignored public comment, adopted a map that gerrymandered the districts, but adopted it too late, even though they were told multiple times what the deadlines were, and then acted surprised about it and tried to hold a, another closed door executive session to figure out how they were going to get around that fact. And they, it just, fortunately, they were smart enough not to violate our charter and let the old districts, which they passed last summer, knowing that they had to, to there's two deadlines they had to deal with. There was a 10-year deadline and a six-month deadline. They dealt with a 10-year deadline. They forgot about the six months. And the only people that are responsible for that is the current board leadership and majority, the progressive majority. Joe Bernie, Heather Buck, Lori Trieger. People are mad about why the new districts aren't in place for next year. That's who you need to talk to. So that happened in December, you know, and I made a little bit of an announcement at the end of December that some folks weren't real happy about, but I am not going to run for re-election. So with that, I am going to call it a day for the Bose Nose Show, now that I realized I've run over. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I might have a guest next week. I might not. And it might be related to that announcement I made in December. But we'll see. Thank you for listening to Bo's Nose Show. We'll be back next week coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone.